Hi. How's it going? Good. I'm Kimberly. Um, I didn't think I needed an introduction, even though... What? Oh. Mike's doing this at me. <laughs> or not maybe at me. Um, my name's Kimberly. I was on staff here, and then I moved to Alamosa. And then I came back, and I was on staff again for the summer. And now I live in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. <laughs> and now I'm back preaching. So that's me. Um, the If you noticed all of the stuff that was running, if you were in here, um, all the pictures, that was pictures over the years of people at SCUM eating together. Basically, that was it. Um, it relates to our topic tonight, so I thought it would be fun to just kind of catalog all the time pictures that we had of people eating together. This sermon is an extension or an addition to the sermon series that we've been going through about the ethos here at SCUM, things that we do, what kind of why we do them, but the things we never talk about. So um, it's had a theme thus far of walking, but I, I didn't know how to do that because we're talking about eating. So that's why the walking is crossed out. <laughs> um, is there anything else I was supposed to say? Okay, good. So hi, I'm Kimberly. Welcome to Scott. <laughs> um, so in August, like I said, my husband Jim and I, we moved to Scott's Bluff, Nebraska. And because many of you probably don't know where that is, it's about an hour and a half from Cheyenne. And there should be, there's not a map. Okay. If you drive north on I-25, you get to Cheyenne, and then you go diagonal for about an hour and a half, just over the border into Nebraska, that's where we live. And there's lots of cornfields and cows, and the North Platte River runs there, and people have called it the Sticks. It's not quite the sticks. I mean, there's almost 20,000 people that live in our community. That's pretty decent. But there is no Starbucks. So because I've moved a lot, I'm wondering if there's some camaraderie here for me tonight. Can you, by a show of hands, I'm going to ask you a question. And then if it, if it relates to you, keep your hand up because I'm going to ask more questions. So. How many of you have had a major move in the last year? Like, totally moved to a new community? Hands high. That's impressive. Okay, keep your hands up. How many of you have had a major move, like, new community in the last two years? Like, half. Maybe more. Okay, five years. Ten. It's like almost everybody. Yes, you all know what it's like. So I want you to remember that experience when you had that major move that you were thinking of. The time when your entire community changed, your whole neighborhood. The people that you spent time with, effort getting to know, had coffee with, gone and had a drink at the bar with, Friday nights, going to the movies. Those people basically are now distance memories. And now you've got a new place where you don't even know where the grocery store is, much less the closest Starbucks, which for me is Cheyenne. It's sad. 
I actually went on the Starbucks website and requested one to be put in, in our town. That's sad, isn't it? Um, so not to mention that you don't know where the grocery store is, but you also need to find a job, a church, maybe a friend or two. As I've talked to people about this kind of big move thing that we've done now twice in the last two years, people have said, oh, it'll take you at least six months. The biggest number I've heard is actually seven years. My mom told me it would take seven years to find community. I was really depressed when she told me that. So changing community, I think, can be a really lonely time because there isn't anyone to go grab a cup of coffee with and just say, how's your day? There's no one on a Friday night when you're done with work and just want to crash and go have dinner at, you know, the local Thai place and go grab a movie. You can't do that because who are you going to do it with? There isn't someone who knows your tics, your quirks, who absolutely thinks you're hilarious. Did I lose this? Yes. Okay. Uh, Who thinks you're hilarious and just wants to hang out with you. The most lonely, though, I think, is that when the people that love you aren't near. Are you depressed yet? Well, I bring this up partly because, to be honest, it's been my life a bit. But I, as we raised hands, I think a lot of you can relate. But I think also um, it relates to our passage today in that Jesus knows what it's like too. To lose community, to lose the people who know him best. The passage that we're looking at today is sandwiched in between two stories. One where one of his closest people betrays him so that he is arrested and crucified. I think death is probably, you know, a pretty big absence from community. So Jesus feels this coming, and it's also Passover time where they celebrate where they celebrate um, God's mercy over them when they were enslaved in Egypt and brought them out of that. So they're celebrating this with a meal. But Jesus calls them together, his closest friends, and he gives them something because he doesn't want them to forget him, and he doesn't want them to forget the community that they have together part of the reason. So will you read along with me? Luke 22, 14 to 20. Sorry, I didn't put my marker in. And I know I could just read it off the screen, but I, I don't want to do that. Okay, Luke twenty-two fourteen to 20. So this is sandwiched in between those two stories, and they're celebrating the Passover meal. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
Now, the actual words there for eagerly desired is a Semitic expression that indicates great emotion. It actually, like if you were to read it in the actual language and translate it, it says, with desire, I have desired. I think there's a lot of desiring. He really wanted it. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. When he says when the kingdom of God comes, he's talking about when all of this ends and we are in heaven with God. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The part he doesn't want them to forget. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And it goes on, but we're going to stop there, because... I just want to focus on the meal. I think it's interesting that Jesus first thought it so important to gather with his 12 closest friends before he left. And he knew that their relationships were so important that he didn't want them to forget him. So he gave them bread to remember him by. This is a very ordinary thing. Think about it. It'd be like if I said, I'm going to go away. I'm going to move away and I'm not going to come back like probably in your lifetime. But every time you see a piece of paper and write on it, I want you to remember me. Okay. Which is like how many times in your day? The other amazing thing to me about bread is that it spans cultures. Think about different cultural types of bread. So if you're going to a Greek restaurant to enjoy Greek food, the bread you get is pita. If you're going to enjoy some wonderful tiki masala at the Indian restaurant down the street, you get naan. I would like, you know, beans and rice and tortillas. So loaves, crackers, it just goes on. And then who knows this? I'm sure somebody here does. When you go to the Ethiopian restaurant and you get those pancake things, what are those called? Say it again. Zach, you have to scream it. Tapati? Japati. Japati. Basically, bread can be a very humble meal for a very poor person. Or it can be included in a very fancy schmancy meal. Poor people eat it. Rich people eat it. People in all cultures eat it. Jesus wants us to know in a very tactile, touchable, universal way that he wants to be with us. And he sustains us, fills us, provides for us. And it's not like they're going to run short. 
Jesus is good for this life, but also in the life to come as it reflects on. Because it talks in the passage about the, the kingdom coming and the meal itself finding fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So it reflects to, to us to say, this is the bread of life here, now, but also in the life to come. Think about that for a bit. Simple, but perhaps complex. Jesus brought the holy and the sacred into our normal routine of eating bread every day. So what's the significance of this? Jesus made the ordinary sacred. He made ordinary bread sacred. So what? Why it's significant is because I can't do that. You can't do that. He was able to do it because of who he was, that he was the Messiah, the incarnate God here on earth, come to restore and to renew and to start, for some of us, relationship. Not only did he say, this bread will now be sacred, he turned water into wine He turned some loaves and some fishes into enough food for over 5,000 people. He healed people. He made ordinary things into absolutely miraculous, sacred experiences and objects. So as I was preparing preparing for this sermon, I kind of thought, okay. So, great. (laughs) Now what do I do? Because this piece of bread is now sacred. That's hard for me to get my mind around because it's still just a piece of bread in my head. I think part of it is because we are trained in our culture to despise the ordinary. We have a constant pursuit in our culture of wanting to be extraordinary special, set apart. Or perhaps you could think about it this way. I want to be unique, different, my own individual. I don't really want to be just like you. Or perhaps you're in academia and just doing the normal study, that doesn't cut it. When you write your dissertation, when you write your thesis, you have to come up with a brand new idea that supposedly nobody has ever thought of. Extraordinary. But never ordinary. Jesus seems to take the ordinary and say, this is really good. I put my stamp of approval on it. You are really good, just the way you are. You don't have to be extraordinary for me. In fact, that you are ordinary is extraordinary for me. So, Jesus turned the table and eating into a symbol of sacredness and to remember him by I was thinking about things that go from being really ordinary 
to do not so ordinary. So uh, think about a piece of paper. We were talking about paper earlier. And there was a piece of paper in 1776, and it was just a piece of paper until Thomas Jefferson started writing on it. And now it's the Declaration of Independence that is in the National Archives in a huge case with glass and special lighting so it doesn't deteriorate as quickly as it normally would. And we all go to see it. And it's become like this reverent kind of thing where we hold it up because it's what made our country and our nation who we are. It's our, the philosophy of what we're founded on. But before all of that, it was just a piece of paper. Isn't it kind of crazy that we have a piece of paper from 1776? I just think that's remarkable. Or in the seminary library the other day, there's that codex. What is that that's there? It's the Latin Bible, isn't it? Or a copy of it? We still have really old copies and manuscripts of scripture that were just pieces of paper before that. Has any of you ever been to the Hard Rock Cafe? (laughs) I don't think they're as cool as they were when I was about 12. However, there's pictures and guitars and clothes on the wall that is, some have been signed, and they're made artwork of some sort, some might say, um, because maybe they were worn by Elvis. So they've been declared unordinary, maybe to some extraordinary. I was thinking, why did Jesus do this? Because he could have just said the sacred is sacred. You know, think about going into a church that is sacred space. In, say, the Orthodox Church, a lot of times they're gold-leafed ceilings with marble floors. And it's just spectacular with the... Oh my gosh, my words just left me. The windows. The stained glass windows. That's sacred, right? You don't even have to guess that. There is a quote that I read that I think puts it really well. After Jesus was gone, they would still have God's word, but that word was going to need some new flesh. The disciples were going to need something warm and near that they could bump into on a regular basis. Something so real that they would not be able to attain it, to intellectualize it, Something so untidy that there was no way that they could ever gain control over it. So Jesus gave them things they could get their hands on. Things that would require them to get close enough to touch one another. In the case of the meal, he gave them things they could smell and taste and swallow. So over the centuries, this has become a really important part of the church that we come together and we remember that meal. We call it communion. Some call it the Eucharist, the Lord's supper, and we do it together in acts two. There's a description of how the church was functioning in the very beginning. There's a few past few verses. It shows us a quick glimpse of how important breaking bread together became to the community. 
So it'll be up here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Here, community is summarized by four things, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And it's emphasized that they devoted themselves to this. And in this passage, it talks about them breaking bread twice together in this very short period. So their community overflowed into their homes, out of the sacred space, and the ordinary was sacred. We here at SCUM want to emulate this, want to do this too. So people have asked me before, how do I get involved here? How do I meet people? Because sometimes it's hard. And... If you ask Mike, he'll tell you the meeting after the meeting is the most important meeting. So going to Greek town or going to St. Mark's or going to Yogurtland is perhaps even more important for finding community than being here. But you have to come here to know where everybody's going. My answer is food. Get involved with the food somehow because you're bound to meet somebody. Cook it, serve it, clean it up. Or just sit at a table and eat it. When we first came to Scum, when I first came to Scum, we were meeting a church in the city over on Josephine and Colfax. And it was really hard for me to meet people because I'm kind of an introvert. You, you might not know that, but I am. I really like my alone time. And if I don't have to talk to you, I won't. That doesn't mean I don't love you, though. It just means I'm an introvert. So I have a hard time talking to people when there's not a reason, basically, is the point. Even this bottle in my hand will make it easier for me to talk to you for whatever reason. Can anybody relate? (laughs) So I started cooking in the kitchen. I met a few people that way, and it wasn't really scary because I met, like, three people, and we were cutting carrots. And you don't have to really talk a whole lot when you're cutting carrots. And if you want to, you can talk about the carrot. I'm not intimidated by that. And then after a while, it kind of worked up to serving the food. So at church in the city, we would have big tables and like people would serve the food. So then I was meeting like 200 people who went through the line, but I had a big pot with a spoon. So I really didn't have to say more than hello. However, after I would say a couple of months, I suddenly realized I knew the names of almost everybody in the room. And I had a community of people that I called my church. So you see, the ordinary food became sacred because it became the place where I came into contact with my church. We here are an ordinary group that is transformed into a sacred community around Christ because of him and our proximity to him. We are made extraordinary. 
our community is made extraordinary. As I've moved away and felt the absence of community, I've realized two things. That this place is really special. And this place is also perhaps like you can't duplicate it. Um, at least for me. And I think that some people have that here. They have that community here. But they don't realize it. And I don't want you to have to go away like I did to realize it. Some people here don't have it and need to know that it's here. Partly because we're called to community and we need it. And I think Jesus knew that, which is why he called his disciples around the table and said, do this in remembrance of me, because if you gather around me, you will hold together. So as we are called as a community of Christians in Christ, we do things like have dinner in the middle of our service which I don't think I know any other church that does that. We stop a perfectly good worship set to go eat dinner. It's not very efficient. We like tell everybody to sit down and start, you know, gather. And then we say, wait, get up, go downstairs, disperse. Okay, wait, come back together. It's just not very efficient. But why do we do it? We do it because we were called by Christ to gather around the table together as a community and that this ordinary thing of eating becomes sacred. If we remember Christ in it and that he called us to it, it's why we go out afterwards. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Sorry. Why we go to Greek town or the breakfast King. Why we go to St. Mark's, why we go to yogurt land. It's also why we meet in the middle of the week at our homes, because our homes then become places that are sacred. Our garages become places that are sacred. Wherever we congregate, wherever we meet. And they're sacred because we invite Christ into those places with us. It's why we as a church have a bike shop at our building. It's why we have gatherings on first Fridays and pancake breakfast. So all those pictures that we're running of people eating together are actually not very ordinary pictures after all, but are quite sacred remembrances of times when we have gathered as a community of Christ around a common table together. It's important to break bread together. And when Christ is present, when we remember him in the midst of those times, they are no longer ordinary, but sacred times with extraordinary people. We come together in Christ and are changed by him. And so we will tonight. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread And he broke it, 
And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Tonight, we're going to receive communion together to remember that this ordinary thing is sacred in Christ. If you have never come to the table, if you have not started a relationship with a community, with Jesus in that community. I invite you to the prayer room. If you want to talk to somebody about what that means, because this is like a really weird thing to do. If that, if you don't have a framework for what that means. Um, but if you get Jesus and what he's about and that he is the savior of the world and through his death on the cross, has offered us forgiveness of our sins and that this meal is a representation and a memorial of that, then you are invited to this table with this community to receive him, to receive the sacred in the ordinary.